that they're being watched. You know, this is a little embarrassing because I normally try to have three older hymns and four newer songs, and I thought his name was one, and his wonderful was an old hymn. So, got the numbers wrong. Sometimes, to change things up, I switch it and do four hymns and three newer songs just to keep things exciting. Um, Seriously, uh, you know, you can't please everyone with music, right? Some people love older songs, some people love newer songs, and uh, hopefully uh, we're all willing to joyfully sing praise to God in the style that we're not most comfortable with uh, because we're singing praise to God and because there are other people around us who delight in singing praise to God with the songs they know best. And so uh, we do try to sing a mix of older and newer songs, um, all which which hopefully are... um, worded with various descriptions of God's glory and majesty and what he's done for us in salvation. Um, You know, we sang that one new song today that we sang a couple weeks ago, Grace and Peace. And uh, we actually have, I think, about ten new songs we're going to do this in the next year or so. And by new, uh, someone pointed out to me we never did new old songs. And I said, well, we do them, we just don't announce it because everybody knows them. And he said, well, people don't necessarily know old songs, so... I thought, that's a good point. Not everybody knows old songs. So, uh, so uh, I sent out an email, and I'll send it again, just with kind of a playlist of songs that we'll be doing, uh, some of which will be new to you and some which won't, and some of which are new to the world and some of which are two to 300 years old. Uh, so uh, in all these things, we just seek to worship God, um, whether old melodies, new melodies, old songs, new songs, because uh, God's worthy of praise, isn't he? Well, as the story goes, a man was walking in the woods when he heard the yelping and shrieking and howling of a dog. And as he followed the, do- the sounds, he discovered this dog trapped in an abandoned trap. And in the middle of nowhere, this dog's fate was certain death. Uh, and the man tried to rescue the dog, but every time he got near, the, the dog would bark furiously at him and growl at him and act very menacing. And so finally, he found a stick with a fork in it, and he held the dog's head down And he released the dog from the trap. And immediately the dog ran off to freedom. But as the man continued on his journey, he discovered that the dog was following him. And the man found that the dog followed him the rest of his life. As we study Colossians this morning, what we discover is that because God has saved us radically from certain death, we should follow him our entire lives. We were dead in sin, we were opposed to Christ, but God made us alive in Christ. And because of what Christ has done for us, we must live for him. So turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Colossians chapter 2. It will help you if you study your Bible as we preach this morning. Colossians chapter 2. If you're using the church Bible, this is on page 984. Page 984. Colossians 2, we're going to be studying verses 6 through 15 this morning. Colossians chapter 2. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up and is built up in him and established in the faith, 
just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all, excuse me, the head of all rule and authority. Eleven, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let us pray together. God, our Father, it is a joy to be gathered with your people. It's a joy to look at your word, not simply to gain knowledge, but because in your word we find you. In your word we find Christ. And in your word we find ourselves, previously dead and lost, without hope, but in Christ given life and joy and fullness. And so I pray that as we study your word that you would help us to have true understanding. Help me to teach in a way that is right and true and consistent with your word. If I should say anything that fails to meet that standard, may it be quickly forgotten. Lord, any time I stand to preach, I'm reminded of my own frailty and my own struggles and sin, and so I ask that you would use a crooked stick to strike a straight blow. Lord, you are glorious and majestic, and you're worthy of all of our praise. So as we study your word this morning, help us to see your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We have a common pattern in Paul's letters that he transitions from proclaiming truth about God and about salvation to giving commands about how to think and live. You may have heard people talk about an indicative imperative sequence. So indicative sentences are are statements that indicate something, that explain something, that share facts, that convey truth. And imperative sentences are commands. So Paul often opens his letters with a series of indicative statements of fact And then based on those truths, he transitions into imperative commands to be followed. And here in verse 6 of chapter 2, we arrive at Paul's first imperative command in what will be a long string of imperatives that carry all the way through chapter 4, verse 7, until he gets to the close of his letter. And this is, of course, not to say that Paul has not been expressing things as readers should do. And this is not to say that Paul is not going to continue expressing glorious truths about God. But it's a general pattern that he follows that shows how how we think and how we understand impacts how we live and ultimately controls how we live. And Colossians is really one of the best examples of that pattern. To this point, Paul has written pretty extensively on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Paul himself is an apostle of Christ. He thanks God because of the Colossians' faith in Jesus Christ. He's prayed that they would walk worthy of Jesus Christ. And then he provided an extended hymn of praise to Jesus Christ. 
Lord of all creation, Lord of the new creation, preeminent in all things, reconciling man to God, bringing the dead to life, transferring us from darkness to light, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Jesus Christ is the mystery of God, hidden for ages, now revealed to us as his people. And now Paul is going to take all these truths that he's, he's given and he's going to apply them directly to the life and belief of the Colossians. Verse 6, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Now, therefore is pointing back to all that Paul has taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. And based on who you are in Christ, walk in him. Based on what you believe, live a life pleasing to God. All of Paul's instruction going forward is going to come back to who Christ is and what he's done and what is true of God's people because of what Christ has done for us. But we're going to look at this through the lens of what is true of God's people this morning, and we see three main points. Established in Christ, belonging to Christ, alive in Christ. Established in Christ, belonging to Christ, alive in Christ. We're going to look at our first main point, established in Christ. Established in Christ. Verse 6, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now this is really the heart of the entire letter. As you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, follow him. As you have trusted Jesus Christ, live to please him. As you have come to understand the glory of Jesus Christ, so live your life in him. What you believe determines what you do. So if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, let that be the central core of your reality. Live based on what you believe. Or to borrow from Apostle James, what good is your faith if it has no works? Faith without works is dead. And this is the central point of the entire letter. Because Jesus Christ is Lord, live for him. Because Jesus Christ is Lord, live for him. Meditate on the glory of the Lordship of Jesus Christ and then live your life in a way that magnifies the glory of Christ. That's it. That's the whole letter. Because Jesus Christ is Lord, live for him. And if you get that, you get Colossians. So we can just call today, wrap up our series. When Paul talks about receiving Jesus Christ as Lord, he's using technical language for believing the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the way Paul has arranged this phrase, Christ Jesus the Lord, it's probably a reference to the public confession of the early church, Christ Jesus is Lord or Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, we see it in over half of Paul's letters. All the things Paul has been teaching about Jesus Christ are things they have received, things they have been taught, and things they have believed. And Paul uses this language regularly to speak of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Receiving Christ Jesus the Lord is acknowledging that Jesus is the Christ, God's promised Messiah of Israel. He's the Lord of all, not just of Israel or of a certain area. He's Lord of all things and all time. He lived a perfect life of righteousness. He died in the place of sinners. And then he rose from the dead, victorious over sin, over death, over all the forces of evil. And now he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He'll come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And when Paul says they received Christ Jesus the Lord, 
He means they have acknowledged these things to be true, to be real, to be reality. They have, they have confidence in their soul that this is who Jesus Christ is as Lord of the universe. Jesus is not just a divine hero. Jesus is not a lesser God. Jesus is not a way of reconciliation to God that you might consider and take or leave at your own preference. Christ Jesus is Lord of all. Very fundamental to being a Christian is the acknowledgement that Jesus Christ is Lord. You cannot reject the Lordship of Jesus Christ and claim to believe in him. If you do not believe Jesus Christ is Lord, you do not believe in Jesus. You believe in someone else. And I don't mean to say that a new Christian must have a complete understanding to really be a Christian any more than an older Christian could, compl- could claim to have complete knowledge. But to believe Jesus is to believe in him as he is, not simply as you want him to be. The whole passage is speaking to Christians, to those who believe in Jesus Christ. And these promises are only true for you if you believe in Jesus. So if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, the challenge to you as you hear this passage is not to start trying to do these things, but to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. And all this together highlights the central theme. Because Jesus Christ is Lord, live for him. Christ alone determines how we think and act and live. Our entire life sits under the authority of Jesus Christ. Our entire life must reflect the lordship of Jesus Christ. We can see that Paul has confidence in the Colossians. He's made it clear earlier in chapter 1 he believes his readers are genuinely saved. Uh, Some of his letters, like Galatians, he's deeply worried that maybe they've already turned away from the faith. But he's much more positive toward the Colossians here. And based on their salvation in Jesus Christ, Paul is going to challenge them to walk faithfully with Jesus Christ. Back in chapter 1, verse 10, Paul prayed the Colossians would walk worthy of the Lord. And here he challenges them to do exactly what he had prayed that they would do. Which is a reminder to us that God often calls us to do things that he's going to work in us. We must pursue obedience to God knowing that all power to obey God, all power to honor God, comes from God himself. All power to obey Christ comes from the work of Christ. And so we act and we pray and we trust based on the work of Christ. The key to this opening section is that the Colossians, they're established in Christ. So first they've received Christ Jesus as Lord. They hold these truths about who Jesus is. They know Jesus Christ, they're in him. But Paul also connects this challenge to walk in Christ with being rooted, built up, and established. So we'll look at those in turn. Rooted is a verb, it's in the perfect tense. It refers to a past, a completed action. And usually perfect verbs keep referring to ongoing results of that action. So they have been rooted in Christ, firmly planted, established in Jesus Christ. Just as a plant thrives when it is firmly planted... So they have everything they need for a complete and spiritually prosperous life. The rich soil that they are planted in is Christ himself. And because they've been planted, as they're built up, they will continue to be established in the faith. But it all, all goes back to being grounded, being planted in Christ. And then Paul changes the metaphor from planting to building 
when he says they're built up in Christ. So they've already been rooted, and they are being built up in a present and ongoing sense. And both of these words are passive, by the way. Uh, The Colossians did not root themselves. They are not building themselves up. God rooted them, and God is building them up. God is actively working in the lives of of the believers to build them up. Which is a reminder that God's people are still under construction. And aren't you glad that we're still under construction? At least I'm glad God is not done working in me. Um, We are not what we once were, but we are not yet where we want to be. And sometimes it's hard to see God's work in our lives. But consider, are there things that you know today that you didn't know a year ago about Christ? Do you see Christ today in ways that you did not see him a year ago? Do you see how God has poured out his grace in your life in the past year? You know, for some, maybe you weren't even saved a year ago. Maybe you weren't fellowshipping with God's people a year ago. Maybe there was some sin that you were deeply struggling with a year ago, but today God has given you victory. If you are a Christian, God is building you up. And third, we see that God is establishing them in the faith, strengthening, strengthening them in the faith. God is causing their faith to grow. And again, we see that God is working uh, for the good of his people through Christ. It says they're doing these things just as they were taught. And here we see how God uses the church, his people, to build up his people and establish them. Uh, someone taught the Colossians these truths. Some other Christian who cared about them took time out of his life or her life to teach them these truths about Jesus Christ to ensure they saw how it related to their lives, which is a reminder we all need God's people to speak into our lives and to teach us. But the, places, the church is a place where we grow, where we're encouraged to walk with Christ. There's a fourth characteristic, and this is the only one that is an active verb. All these other things are passive. God is doing them in us. Uh, this is the one we do, overflowing with thankfulness. God's actions in our lives produce thankfulness in us. David Garland writes, As luxuriant green leaves are a sign of a healthy plant, profuse thanksgiving is the unfailing mark of a healthy spiritual life. As God works in us, we overflow with thanksgiving to him. Seeing where we were in our sin and what God has done for us results in thanksgiving. When we recognize that everything that we have is a gift from God, we'll be thankful. And we can't help but be thankful when we consider God's goodness and love toward us. Douglas Moo concludes this section, Believers can live lives that exemplify the Lordship of Christ only by remaining like branches, firmly attached to the vine in which God has placed them, and by continuing to allow God to integrate them like stones into the new structure that is nothing other than Christ himself. So we see God's people are established in Christ. The second main point, belonging to Christ. Belonging to Christ. Verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So don't let let anyone take you captive. After this overarching uh, imperative to walk in Christ, 
This is Paul's detailed command, a strong warning against being taken captive. And Paul's method for dealing with this threat is to restate the completeness of Christ's victory for us over against all evil. So throughout this section, Paul ties back to themes he stated in his introduction and the reality that we belong to Christ. Because we belong to Christ, we must not let ourselves be taken captive by anything. Because we belong to Christ, we are filled in him. The things that are true of the lordship of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us are the reason why false doctrines will ultimately fail. And by identifying with Jesus Christ and his lordship, God's people inherit the benefits of the kingdom he has established. So what is true of Jesus Christ as the perfect image of God is transferred, in a sense, to us, his people. Let's take a look at some of the details of this section The verb behind takes you captive is a really rare word. Uh, It's the language of taking plunder or taking captives in war. Uh, And military is really an appropriate analogy because Paul is dealing ultimately with spiritual warfare. Ideas and philosophies and truth claims that are ultimately in opposition to Christ. Now, if if you're taken captive in war, uh, you become a pawn of the enemy And in much the same way, if you reject Jesus Christ by turning to one of these other philosophies, you become a pawn of the enemy. Uh, You're no longer able to effectively serve Christ, and in fact, you must be rescued from this false teaching that you have embraced. So, don't let anyone take you captive. People are going to try to take you captive, but you must fight them by clinging to the truth of Christ. And they'll try to take you captive through what he calls philosophy, and empty deceit. Now, in our day, we use philosophy in a very narrow sense as the study of existence and knowledge, uh, like a philosophy professor or a philosophy class. Um, The Greek word is is much more broad than that. It includes that. Um, In fact, the word philosophy comes from the Greek language. It means a lover of wisdom. Uh, You probably know the names Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. They were Greek philosophers from a few hundred years before Paul, and their philosophy still influences our culture today. Uh, Plato's Republic is one of the main underpinnings of our own form of government here in the United States. But while the people like Plato and Aristotle, they did teach philosophy, the word in Greek is really much broader than that. It just means any system of thought. Uh, So they would speak of the philosophy of the Pharisees or the philosophy of the Sadducees, or the philosophy of the Jews as a whole. Uh, Paul's not condemning the field of study known as philosophy. He's condemning this full thought, philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So essentially, Paul is condemning all systems of thought based in worldly wisdom that are in opposition to Christ. Now, it would certainly include any philosophy that rejects God and Christ. It would exclude any any philosophy whose presuppositions exclude God or Christ. It would definitely exclude any philosophy whose morality is in opposition to Christ. And so, while we can acknowledge much of our philosophy today actually would fit the category Paul's talking about, he's speaking much broader than that. Well, whoever is trying to teach the Colossians is probably using the language of philosophy themselves. And so Paul doesn't directly identify the contents of their philosophy, but we see some kind of strong hints as we read Colossians over the next several weeks 
of what, what is being taught. What is clear is that this philosophy stands in direct opposition to a true understanding of Christ Jesus. Paul refers to this false teaching as empty deceit. Calling it empty is saying it has no value morally or spiritually. It doesn't add to true wisdom or true understanding. Calling this deceit is just flat out saying it is false. People who teach this are teaching deceitfully. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is identified in chapter 1 as true, powerful, and transforming. And this philosophy that the Colossians are hearing is deceitful, empty, and worthless. So the gospel is true, powerful, and transforming. This philosophy is deceitful, empty, and worthless. And Paul describes this philosophy in three ways, each begin, beginning with according to. So according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. Uh, human tradition was very valued in their day. Uh, in, our di- in our day, things, ideas that are old are considered to be questionable. Uh, back then, ideas that were old were considered to have more weight. And so the ideas being proposed to the Colossians sounded like they had the weight of history behind them. But that wasn't sufficient to make them true. And the things Paul's reminding the Colossians about are not just human tradition. They come from God himself. Well, like Paul's day, sometimes we can love ideas just because they're old. Uh, Sometimes we love ideas just because they're new. And we have to remember that whether something is old or new is not ultimately relevant to whether it is true. What's relevant is whether it is consistent with Christ. Now, Paul also says this teaching is according to the elemental spirits of the world. Uh, This phrase, elemental spirits of the world, is a very rare phrase. It's used here and again in verse 20 and very little else. Uh, It's very hard to translate. Most translations are not identical here. They almost all have some differences because of how hard it is. The three most likely options are um, that Paul's referring to the material elements that make up the universe, so the elemental things of the universe, the elementary teachings or principles of the world, or third, the elemental spirits of the world, which is obviously what the English Standard Version has chosen. Um, All three of these options fit the context in one way or another. Uh, Material elements would be referring to physical things. And when Paul begins describing the teachings to avoid in verse 16, he begins by speaking of physical things, what we eat and drink. So that could be what Paul is saying. Um, Elemental principles would refer to teachings, And in verse 16, Paul also addresses festivals and new moons and the Sabbath, which have to do with teaching. Uh, Elemental spirits would address the spirits who hold sway in the world. And in verse 18, Paul speaks of the worship of angels. So all three options are viable. I lean slightly toward the first one. And just to explain that in the briefest way, when Paul uses this exact same phrase again in verse 20, the application he gives is about physical things. Verse 20 If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? So it seems to be referring to physical things. Whichever way we understand it, the key point is that these elementary things are of the world and not of Christ. They're inferior to Christ. In fact, whatever they're teaching about these things is in opposition to Christ, and that's Actually, what Paul highlights next, not according to Christ. The teaching that is confronting the Colossians seems to be adding something 
to Christ. Perhaps Christ is not sufficient, and so we need to add our own works or our own philosophy. Or perhaps Christ is too high to be concerned about our lowly situation, so we need to appeal to angelic beings who are a little closer to the world. That very much fits the Greek philosophy. The, the gods weren't much concerned, but the lower gods were concerned about the world. And so we need to bring in elements from the world to round out our service, to complete our worship, to, to finish our faith. These things are not according to Christ, which ultimately means that they are opposed to Christ. And everything we believe about the nature of reality must be held to the standard of Christ. Does this idea I have match up to God's revelation of Christ? Is my theology consistent with what we see to be true of Christ? Does the way I live match up with the glory of Christ? We must not be taken captive by false belief systems. We must hold firm to Christ. Now, verses 9 and 10 really explain how these things are not according to Christ because Christ has all the fullness of God and gives us all his fullness. Verse 9, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In the Old Testament, God's fullness dwelled in the tabernacle. Later, God's fullness dwelled in the temple, and in the New Testament, the fullness of God is in Christ. Jesus is the true temple. And Jesus Christ has the whole fullness of God. Christ is fully God. But that whole fullness of God dwells in Christ bodily, which reminds us Jesus was a human. With a human body, fully human, just like us. And yet, he was fully God. And Paul might be choosing the word bodily here to highlight that although uh, Paul condemned the elemental materials of the world uh, as being tied up with the evil world. He, he's not teaching a dualism where anything material is inherently bad. The human body is a material thing, but it is a thing that will be resurrected. So the physical world is not inherently bad. The problem with the physical world is the curse of sin, the influence of sin in the world. The whole fullness of God dwells in Jesus Christ. And then Paul applies that truth, amazingly, to us, to the Colossians, to believers. You have been filled in him. Now this language is probably a direct contrast to what the Colossians are hearing elsewhere. Fullness isn't found in the world. Fullness is not found through other teachings. Fullness is found in Christ alone. He has all the fullness of God and he gives us all the fullness. But just to say, we don't need to go outside of Christ to be filled or fulfilled. There's not some deeper and better spiritual experience than what Christ himself offers. You don't have to go to a mountain in Budapest or a temple or anywhere. All you need is Christ to have all the fullness and the one who fills God's people is the head of all rule and authority. There's no greater power than Christ who fills his people. So there's no other power that God's people could possibly need than the power of Christ. We belong to Christ. We are his. 
He fills us. And the things that belong to Christ are granted to his people in him. We are identified in him. And so we must not be taken captive by philosophies that oppose Christ because we belong to him and no one else and nothing else. Third made point, alive in Christ. Alive in Christ. Verse 11, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in the trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross." He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The imagery that Paul uses here points to the reality that we are truly alive in Christ. And first Paul uses the language of circumcision, but not a circumcision made with hands. Now, some have taken the sentence to indicate that circumcision was an issue in Colossae, But that's actually really unlikely that the Colossians are being challenged to be circumcised. Uh, Paul never directly confronts circumcision in the letter. And here he's actually speaking specifically of something very different. So circumcision in the Old Testament was a command of God as part of his covenant with Abraham. It was a unique sign of them being his people. Uh, For the Jewish people, what proved you were a Jewish man was that you were circumcised. Gentiles could join Israel, they could become Jews, but in addition to acknowledging the revelation of God, the men had to be circumcised. And circumcision represented participation in God's covenant, inclusion in the covenant family of God. But even in the Old Testament, Moses taught that what God's people really needed was a circumcision of the heart, not just the flesh. And this circumcision of the heart is what Paul's talking about in Romans 2, 28 and 29. And it's the kind of circumcision Paul speaks of here, a circumcision of the heart, removing the sinful flesh that compels us to sin. And because our sinful flesh is removed in Christ, we're no longer bound to sin. Now, there's a lot of debate about exactly what the circumcision of Christ represents. I think it probably refers to his death, on the cross. His fleshly body was violently cut off in death. And Jesus Christ's death on the cross is what enables the circumcision of our own hearts. Our hearts are circumcised because we are circumcised in the death of Christ, because we're connected to him in his death. And if we understand the circumcision of Christ to represent his death, then verses 11 and 12 have a very clear progression. We're united with Christ in the circumcision of his death, We're buried with him in baptism, and we're raised with him through faith. So we have death, burial, resurrection. Jesus Christ's death on the cross represents and accomplishes our death to sin. What people need uh, to do to be saved is not to be circumcised and become Jews. What we all need is circumcision of heart. The circumcision of Christ being united to him in his substitutionary death 
on the cross. And next in verse 12, we see that we're buried and raised with Christ in baptism. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, baptism here is used in one of two ways. It's either a single event, symbolic of all of salvation, uh, because in the New Testament, everyone who is saved was then baptized. Uh, or Paul is using baptism in a spiritual sense, much like he used circumcision just a second ago. Uh, based on the parallel language, I tend to think it's that second option. He's using baptism in a spiritual sense, just like circumcision. Christ, in both cases, is a corporate figure. As in Adam, everyone died. As in Adam, we're all sinners. In Christ, all his people are made alive. It is your connection to Adam that results in your death, in your sin. In Adam, all mankind chose to sin and reject God. And for those who believe in Jesus Christ, it's your connection to Christ that results in your life. Christ's death is your death. Christ's resurrection is your resurrection. Christ's righteousness is your righteousness. For God's people, we died with Christ and we were raised with Christ. And all of this, he says, is through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Scripture is very clear. We cannot in any way be saved by what we do. We're saved by faith in God. We're saved by faith in Christ Jesus. And based on our faith in Christ, we died and were buried and were raised with Christ to new life. And as is common with Paul, it is our connection to Christ that allows us to overcome sin and to overcome false teaching. The reason Paul is bringing these things up is to protect the Colossians from this false teaching that they're being taught that wants to take them captive. The powerful working of God that brought Christ Jesus back, to de- back from death to life is the same power that can preserve you in the face of very tempting false beliefs. The same God who can raise someone from death to life can give you the ability to overcome sin. A couple last points here before we move on. Um, this passage is used by some to defend the practice of infant baptism. Uh, and the premise is that the old covenant sign of circumcision here is connected to the new covenant sign of baptism. And since the old covenant sign of circumcision was applied to infant sons based on the faith of their parents, why would we not apply the new covenant sign of baptism on our children again based on the faith of their parents? The problem is that Paul isn't actually connecting physical baptism with physical circumcision in this text. One, he actually makes no direct connection between the two signs. Uh, Two, he's actually talking about a different kind of circumcision, a circumcision of the heart, a spiritual circumcision. He may be, as I thought, talking about a different kind of baptism, a spiritual baptism, Ultimately, I don't think Paul is actually making any connection here that should point us toward infant baptism. And we also have the consistent message of the New Testament that people believed and then they were baptized. There's no New Testament evidence of the practice of baptizing infants, and certainly not in our text here. One last thing to consider before we move on here, our resurrection is considered as a completed event having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. You were raised with him. The resurrection of your physical body is so certain 
that it can be considered a completed event. If you're in Christ, your eternity is certain. You have been made alive. And so there's no new thing that you need to do, no new action to perform, no new teaching to learn to really be saved, to really be alive. You are already alive in Christ. And so all these ideas that the Colossians have been hearing about how to be really filled, how to have assurance, and so on, all these ideas are really worthless. Verse 13, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside nailing it to the cross. Paul again reminds the Colossians of who they are so that they can realize what God has done for them. They were dead in sin. And we were all dead in sin. By nature, from birth, everyone stands in opposition to God, fully dead in sin, incapable of growth or change, having a nature inclined towards sin. But for those who are in Christ Jesus by faith, God has made us alive together with him. Our life comes from Christ alone. And then Paul uses some illustrations to explain how God has forgiven all our sin. All of our sin is forgiven because of the work of Christ. Everyone owes God a debt of perfect obedience. The language he used was, God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses canceling the record of debt with its legal demands. So we owe a debt of perfect obedience to God. God's our creator, our sustainer, the Lord of the universe. We owe him perfect allegiance and obedience. Failing to give God perfect obedience, we have a debt to him. Sin must be paid for. So we have a record of debt to God because of our failure to obey him. A record written in our own lives, written in a sense in our own handwriting. But Christ paid the debt in our place through his perfect righteousness, through his substitutionary death on the cross. Have you ever considered that your sin can be forgiven? You can be granted right standing with God. The debt you owe can be set aside entirely. But you have to acknowledge that you cannot make yourself right in God's sight. Jesus Christ has accomplished the work of redemption, and you must set your faith in him. The legal demands were set aside. Paul also adds that God set aside our record of debt by nailing it to the cross. And again, we see how Jesus Christ stands in our place and represents his people. Our sin was applied to his cross. Instead of you paying the price for sin... It is covered by the blood of Christ on the cross. Applied to Jesus Christ instead of you. Sin must be paid for. The debt must be paid. And either Christ has paid the debt for you, or you must pay the debt yourself. God teaches us in his word that the debt for sin, the cost of sin, is eternity in hell. Eternity separated from God and his goodness Eternity in torment, a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. You and I deserve this punishment for our sin against an infinitely good and holy God. 
We deserve God's righteous anger against sin. But Jesus took God's wrath in himself on the cross. The sins of his people were nailed to the cross to be borne by Jesus. And if you'll receive Jesus Christ as Lord, your sins will be forgiven, paid by Jesus Christ, covered by Jesus Christ, nailed to his cross. As we sang just a little bit ago, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to his cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. Martin Luther said, Thou, Christ, art my sin and my curse. Or rather, I am thy sin, thy curse, thy death, thy wrath of God, thy hell. And contrarywise, thou art my righteousness, my blessing, my life, my grace of God, and my heaven. We are alive in Christ. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The wisdom of God is greater than the greatest wisdom of this world. On the cross, Jesus was stripped of his robes, stripped of his dignity, fully left to ridicule and shame. But on the cross, Jesus disrobed the rulers and authorities of the world and put them to open shame. The evil forces of the world thought they could crush the Son of God, but he crushed them instead. The evil forces of this world thought they could humiliate the Son of God, but he humiliated them instead. The cross was not the end of Christ Jesus. The cross was the inauguration of his glory as Redeemer. And so all the evil hosts of this present age are disrobed of their glory. Like a Roman general who was celebrated in the streets while his disrobed enemies were paraded behind him, Christ is revealed in glory and all his humiliated opponents are paraded about in open shame. Ultimately, everyone opposed to Christ will be left to open shame. And the question for us is whether we will follow Christ and have his life and death applied to us. Or will we, be, will we remain in opposition to Christ and be left to open shame? As we wrap up, what we see in our passage is that Christ is our life. All of our understanding must be filtered through the lens of Christ. We reject all philosophies and teachings which stand in opposition to Jesus Christ. We live our lives for him and for his glory. We don't have to find fulfillment outside of Christ. Sports or jobs or music, hobbies, none of these things bring fullness to us as Christ brings fullness. God's people are established in Christ. We belong to Christ. We are alive in Christ. We have everything that we need for life and godliness. And so we live for him, as Paul commanded. And may we live for him this week. Let's pray together. God, our Father, you're so glorious and so gracious and kind. We were dead. And in Christ, you've made us alive. Father, once we walked in sin, we loved sin, we found joy in sin and pleasure in sin. 
And if you had not radically changed our hearts, we would still love those things today. We praise you that you sent your son for us. You have nailed our sin to his cross. That the payment of debt was fulfilled in Christ. Jesus, we praise you that you were the lamb who is worthy to be slain. And that you were willing to be slain. And we look forward to the day when you reconcile all things to yourself. Father, I'm sure in a room with this many people, there are some who do not know you, who have never recognized their sin, who have never acknowledged their rebellion against you. I ask that even now you would break their hearts, you would give them new life, you would grant them faith, and that they would turn from their sin and that they would trust in Jesus Christ. That they would see that Jesus Christ is Lord for all eternity. That they would submit to him. Father, you're so good to us. May we live for you. May we glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.